Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. We've all got kids in our lives, whether as parents, aunts and uncles, grandparents, supportive friends, coaches and teachers. But what about as clinicians? How do you approach supporting children and young people who have musculoskeletal pain? Kids are resilient, but that doesn't mean that they don't struggle with pain, and it can sometimes feel hard to know how to talk with kids about pain. That's where today's guest comes in. Dr. Joshua Pate's mission is to help kids and clinicians work better together when it comes to understanding and managing pain. Josh is a physiotherapist, PhD researcher, and author of a series of books for children about pain. So who better to help us learn more today? Let's jump in. Dr. Josh Pate, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Hi, Claire. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for agreeing to come on the podcast. It's great to finally get the chance to chat, Josh. And today I'm really excited because we're getting the chance to chat about pain and particularly how it might affect the young people, the children and adolescents in our lives. What I'd like to do is to start by getting you to set the scene a little bit and tell us about what are the common drivers of musculoskeletal pain in children. So I guess we need to define lots of different terms in that that question. My research is primarily has been in eight to 12 year olds. The reason for that is eight is old enough to fill out a questionnaire by themselves validly. And then 12 is they're not yet generally haven't developed the ability to think abstractly. In terms of what what drives pain in that age group, in that age group, you've got like lots of nonspecific pain start emerging, things like functional abdominal pain or nonspecific low back pain kind of pictures. A lot of chronic pain conditions start. So it's late primary school into early high school when puberty starts. And there's lots of challenges. I subscribe currently to the biopsychosocial way of thinking about pain and And when I say that, I'm not saying forget about the bio or I'm not saying it's all in your head or any of those kind of things. I think there's a real, there's plenty of data supporting how important social factors are and and we see that clinically. And so now when I think about drivers of pain, I don't just think about the tendon or whatever the body part is that is the complaint. I I think about that child, that whole, even that whole household now, like it, it zooms out a lot. A lot of kids get so many scans done. The families can be left absolutely stranded. The drivers of pain is always complex. Even if it's just a simple graze of your knee, I think the the amount of pain felt varies so much depending on, on context. Yeah, and I think one of the common diagnoses that perhaps many of our listeners will have either made with young people that they're seeing or or be familiar with is is anterior knee pain. So I guess there's a couple of big diagnostic baskets and you touched on functional abdominal pain and you touched on low back pain. I guess anterior knee pain is another one to throw into that mix that that many young people will will have that. And again, it's a bit of a catch-all diagnosis. It doesn't really tell you much about what's going on. Yeah, I, that was the the first time I ever saw a health professional for a musculoskeletal condition was, I think I was 11 or 12 and had anterior knee pain. Yeah. And just thinking about like the the passive treatments I received and the approach that like, and, and just how practice has changed is, is kind of exciting in some ways. It's very motivating in terms of teaching the next generation now of of clinicians who are training. Oh, for sure. And I think some of us are a bit guilty. I think probably all of us are a bit guilty of thinking, you know, kids, they're really resilient and 
that doesn't mean that they don't get pain or that they don't struggle with pain. And I think maybe some of us have got a bit of a tendency to dismiss kids' pain and saying, you know, you'll grow out of it. And I can remember as a young person having that said to me that, oh, you'll grow out of this pain. It's okay. Don't worry about it. And we might minimize something that perhaps we we ought to pay attention to. I think it is important to, and you argue that it's important to validate and to listen carefully to what kids are telling us when they say that they have pain. Why is that, Josh? It's really challenging, I think. When I say that we're validated, I think we want to be really, really clear. And I think that primarily comes from the misconception of when someone, when you start identifying, say, social factors or psychological factors as a part of the experience, there's this potential for people to feel, oh, are they saying this is like a psychological pain? Like I'm faking it. And I think that's where I'm talking about validation. I'm not I'm not suggesting we want to like amplify and exaggerate and and dwell on like unnecessarily catastrophize different symptoms and things like that. But it's about making sure that the people who are affected by this pain are all kind of on the same page and they're all aware that it's a it's a real struggle and a challenge and and what those challenges are and aren't. Because sometimes you like in a multidisciplinary clinic in, in the kids' hospital, when you get to the physical exam part of the assessment. Often it's like the physio or the EP takes them out into the corridor and the psychologist is chatting with the parent. And and so you have this moment where you hear, is there anything else you wanted to say today? And and you hear those extra things of, oh, yeah, I didn't want mom or dad to hear this, but blah, blah, blah. And and these disclosing, and it's like, oh, can we chat about it all together? And, And some of those conversations end up being like the thing that helps everyone to move forward together because there's a huge misunderstanding. Like, Imagine, I don't know, if you were 12 and you were training to go to the Olympics for something, you had all this pressure on yourself and then one of your parents is putting pressure on and the other one's not and one is inducing fear in you and the other one's not. Like it can be a real challenge. And and so, yeah, I think that idea of validating is is trying to bring everyone together onto the same page. So it sounds like it's very much about honing those active listening skills and the the reflecting and really listening very carefully. And we hear that a lot from people like Peter O'Sullivan, who have taught us a lot about working with adults who are struggling with chronic pain. So I guess there are similarities and there are differences in how we might approach working with adults versus working with children and young people who have pain. And I'm interested, Josh, in where does the neuroscience sit in relation to kids' pain? Can we take the same principles? that we're perhaps more familiar with from adults' pain and the neuroscience of pain in adults and apply those directly to children? Or do we need to think differently? For me, cognitive development is a big issue. So if we're talking about like providing education, say let's just pick a particular learning outcome, like the biopsychosocial influences on, on pain. Like say you're going to explain something like if you keep looking at your knee and, and thinking about it nonstop while you're running, you might feel more pain or, or less pain. Or like if you're having something, a discussion like that, and you're starting to talk about these broader variables, with an adult, they can think abstractly. And that means that if you ask a, a non-concrete question, like what does it feel like? Some of these broader sentences sound really straightforward. But when you don't have the ability to think abstractly, like an 11-year-old say, it's extremely challenging. And they'll often say, I don't know. And then the parent then goes, well, come on, you should know by now. Like, And it's like, it it creates this tension. And so for me, being developmentally sensitive is about working with the language of the child. And so in a study during my PhD, actually, we, we did this study where we got kids to draw whatever they think of when they hear the word pain. And often once they did a little drawing, like it took 20 seconds, but then they had 
new language to explain what they were saying. So kids with chronic pain would draw emotional things. So uh, hearts and broken hearts and and tears and sad faces. Uh, Whereas kids who didn't have chronic pain just drew injuries exclusively. And for the kids who had chronic pain, once they had drawn that, they were able to then kind of talk about that suffering side of pain. And I think that can be really helpful is it's kind of giving them a voice. And rather than going, okay, I know you called the pain, whatever, like stinging or something, I'm going to call it this. And the textbook says this. And like, I think we want to try and be using that patient-centered language, getting on their level and, and hearing them from their perspective. Yes, you can translate the neuroscience down, but maybe the language needs to be different. And so, for instance, say the biopsychosocial influences in the studies and, and the kids' books I've written where the, the phrase is, many things can turn the volume of pain up and down. So rather than everything matters or there's lots of different things like these kind of word influence and some of these bigger words are a bit challenging. Whereas if it's like, Hey, we're talking about the volume, like they know about plus and minus, and you can, you can really clearly and concretely explain this affects this, and this doesn't affect this, or this turns the volume down, this turns the volume up. Um, And then they start identifying those variables. How would you recommend clinicians who are not as used to working with children and young people necessarily with pain? How how can we unlock those conversations? Is it a matter of keeping some pencils and paper close to your desk in the clinic and giving them to every kid who walks in the door? Or is there some subtle ways that you can start to, to pick up on language that children are using? Yeah, no, great question. That was pretty much the topic of my, my PhD. And we developed a short questionnaire the concept of pain inventory and just 14 little sentences and they can strongly disagree through to strongly agree. And, and it's not about being right or wrong. Unsure is, is just as correct as anything else. <laughs> Having a piece of paper that you can talk about alongside the child rather than kind of trying to confront their beliefs and understand what they're saying, they can, you can just say, hey, why did you tick that learning won't help or learning will help or whatever? And you have that why question where you're, you're facilitating kind of curious questioning and then often that that motivational interviewing type strategy is is sufficient to get the ball rolling because sometimes the kid will say, look, I don't want to talk about it. Like, let's just get on with it. I've been told we do exercises here. Let's do some. And then other kids will say like, but I, I don't know if I'm safe. Like, is it okay for me to exercise? Timelining. And they draw a little graph up on the piece of paper. Hey, can you draw like, here's when you were born and here's when you had the pain started and here's today. Like, show me what what it looks like. And, and you don't even really necessarily need to label the y-axis in some situations. You let them say, oh, the pain was better here and this happened. And then we went on holidays and it was good and this happened. And, and they start identifying all these factors just through this process of timelining. And Josh, how do you manage the consultation and that clinical environment with parents and significant others who might come into an appointment with a child? And that's entirely appropriate. But I think sometimes we can find that the child might look to the parent for reassurance or the parent might want to interrupt and, and explain what the parent's perception of the child's experience is. So what are your tips for managing that dynamic? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I have a PhD student uh, where we're going to be filming and doing this stuff with experts and and physios and clinicians who don't see kids very often and kind of comparing actual physical behaviors and and looking at some of this stuff. I I remember when I first graduated working clinically, I was in a children's hospital and just this very first moment of going, hey, you need to sit on the floor with the kids. And like, that was what my supervisor said. And I just started doing it and it became natural. And I think it's really important, like get down on the level of the kid, talk to the child. And there are times where you want to talk to the parent, but we want to 
yeah, like all the, the jargon words in the literature, it's like child first and family centered. And there's these ideas like you want to make sure the child gets heard, but sometimes they don't really want to talk and they want the parent to speak. And and so you, it's this constant tension of wh- when kind of picking your battles almost like working out when's it appropriate to to ask who, which question really. There's often other things under the surface that come out in these consultations. And so having interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary teams to do these assessments, I think is absolutely essential. But in many parts of the world, that's still not possible. Governments don't fund people to listen, but maybe that will change. I hope so. I hope so too, because it seems like more and more of of the research and what we're learning about musculoskeletal pain, which is what we're talking about today, that listening is really important and, and a key part to people feeling like they are engaged in this whole process of managing whatever the chronic and often it's chronic musculoskeletal problem is that they're that they're dealing with. The most striking thing that drove me to do all this research work was the first time I, I learned about providing education as an intervention and not just using it to then help me have my magic hands moment with chronic pain patients. Just seeing someone long-term get better without me pushing on stuff was just so, so confronting you see in in a lot of interviews online now of uh, patient advocates, they talk about the importance of embedding hope in that initial appointment. And and I think a lot of the ways of doing that is making sure someone feels heard. They're not going to feel hopeful if they feel like you're just putting a, a standard handout on them on their desk. For sure. Now, Josh, what are the key things that you think clinicians ought to watch out for as children grow and as they transition from childhood to their teenage years, go through these different major life milestones, transitions, whether it's from primary school or elementary school to high school, going through puberty. How might those transitions that children are going through influence or play into how kids and young people experience pain? Yeah, I think it is different at different stages of development. And we use age as a rough proxy, but there is so much like the the standard deviation is very wide, right? And so if you think about a child who's going into high school, in some countries and some private versus public settings of schools, they might go to a middle school where it's like year five, six, and seven or something like that. And others, it's like once they get to year seven, that's the big moment. And, and And I think these kind of social milestones are often associated with the onset of anxiety and pain and all these different protective outputs, right? I think we want to be aware of, of what things do we need to assess. There's tools like the PGALs and there's a bunch of screening tools where you can go, okay, the child's this age, this is what I should screen for. And these are the unique pathologies, say, if it's back pain, like here's the spinal pathologies we want to rule out. And here's how we know if it is safe to move or not, or who we should refer to. Some of these guidelines, I think, are getting clearer and clearer. Um, but in saying that, the research in pediatric pain compared to adult pain is is really in its infancy. And like that sounds like a pun, but I'm like being serious. Like even in the education space, like all of the interventions, it's all happened in the last five years for for the educational literature about pain in kids. Josh, tell me, what is best practice in managing or best practice for managing chronic musculoskeletal pain in children and young people? Yeah, I was a part of a review a few years ago looking at the literature on this, and I think a lot about it. And, and in Australia, we the government set up these multidisciplinary clinics. That seems to be the most supportive way forward, but it it's resource intensive and often doing these kind of group pain programs Having a psychologist, a physiotherapist, a pain specialist, it requires a lot of time and, and hard work. 
I just think even just lining up appointments is really tricky. And so for someone who's working in in isolation and they don't have a psychologist next door or a or a physio around or a doctor around, it can be really hard to know when that moment is of, oh, do I refer on and what questionnaires should I use and and some of those kind of questions. I, I do some work with the the team in the pediatric pain lab at Stanford University and they use a series of questionnaires called Choir. And then there's the impact questionnaire sets in the US and, and in Australia we use Epoch. So you can access these sets of questionnaires and look up what they are. And then if you subscribe to a lot of these places, you can then compare your data, but it'll benchmark you or the patients you see are more severe or less severe in terms of whichever variable you want to see. If I was working in a more isolated environment without that support, I would try and make connections and, and be able to bounce ideas off people. I think I'd probably use like standardized and validated tools to try and help screen when and where, because every every health profession we talk to, they always say, oh, if only people were, were referred earlier to me, I could have helped them much more. And that's particularly true, I think, in, in psychology, because it often becomes this like, oh, once everything else has failed, then it's probably all in your head. And I don't, I just think we need to flip that as a society. We want to, and I think generally people are more willing to talk about mental health and things like that. Often we now don't know how to respond when someone says, I'm not okay. It's like, oh, what do we do? Uh, and so that I think that equipping will happen and, and psychologists are leading that. But let's work out when we should refer early and how to have those conversations. And we know that there is often a link between physical health and mental health. And we're getting more and more understanding of mental health diagnoses and, and anxiety and depression are common in the general population and then common again when and often coexist with chronic musculoskeletal pain. So how do you know, how do you kind of tease out those things when you're working with children and and particularly children for whom they're going through life transitions that are stressful, that are often associated with anxiety, like changing schools? How do you kind of tease all of this stuff out, Josh? Particularly I'm thinking for folks who are working in a more isolated solo practice kind of a setting? I, I think it's important to first think about a child's equivalent of their occupation, right? So if, if a kid is going to school, they're spending probably 40% of their waking life with one teacher in, in primary school. Or if they're an elite athlete or they're really into sport, their coach probably has a huge amount of influence. And, and you hear this phrase influencer with social media, <laughs> But I think it's a helpful term in the sense of thinking about uh, a child's pain because parents and teachers, when, when a kid hasn't yet developed a sense of self and identity, having all these people around who have so much influence is really, really challenging. Like I think back, I, I went for a run, it was a couple of months ago now, and I was back in my, the neighborhood where I grew up and um, I was running on the footpath and I saw the manager of my teenage soccer team and he yelled out to me, like he recognized me, which is surprising to start with, but but I hadn't seen him in a long time. And he's like, be careful running on the concrete, you'll get shin splints. And, and I'm like, it's okay. Uh, and, and because I, like, I'm aware of the data and, and how adaptable our bodies are, if we do things in a graded approach and, and, and like I've done, I've been involved in trials where I've been a participant and, and done like barefoot running and all that kind of stuff. And just seeing that change is possible. Whereas if you have these people of influence, like if he had said that to me when I was 14, I really wouldn't have run on concrete. And then my bone modeling is happening in those teenage years. So there's these spirals that can occur from one person of significant influence. 
And so I think for me, the starting point is work out when you're doing the assessment, work out who, who has the influence. Sometimes it's the grandparents, sometimes it's the siblings, parents and teachers would be the most common. And then there's all these other people around. And so if you can identify that, then you've got to think about getting everyone on the same page is probably that first step. We did a study last year in the Stanford Clinic. They do three-hour assessments. And we were, we think that at the end of a three-hour assessment, the parent and the child are probably like thinking in a similar-ish way. Like they've both been talking about the same topic for three hours. Anyway, we gave them the questionnaire, the, the copy questionnaire, and there were similarities. And if you look at the mean total scores, there were similarities between parents and their kids. But there were so many instances where opposite beliefs were being held after immediately following education and, and learning and, and thinking about these things. And you can imagine if someone leaves an appointment and they're really reliant on their influencer because they don't have a, a sense of self yet. It's like, well, if mom or dad says that, that's how it is. And if one parent's saying movement is going to make your body worse, and then the other one's saying movement's going to make your body better, that's really conflicting and confronting to know what to do. There's a lot of challenges, I guess, in, in this kind of setting. What are the best things that we as, as adults and hopefully positive influences on the children, children's lives who we interact with, whether it's as parents or as aunties or uncles or as coaches or as teachers or as clinicians? What are the really good things that we can do, the things that we ought to strive to do to best support children who are managing chronic pain? I keep coming back to the ICF model, the International Classification of Functioning, and, and that box of participation restrictions. And just thinking about it in the opposite way, like facilitating as much participation in meaningful, enjoyable life activities as possible. And so if your nephew or niece is learning to bowl in cricket or whatever the sporting activity is, and you're harping on about a particular technique and they're not quite pitching the baseball right or whatever, in your opinion... I, I just think just back off, like just let let them enjoy it. And, and maybe if you need data to convince you, I remember seeing on Twitter recently uh, the the top ten fastest baseball pitchers all had such different kinematic patterns and different ways of doing the fastest pitches in the world. Um, there were many ways to do it, and and I think that can be a helpful thing is just to like let's be careful about not making everyone hyper vigilant. And it could be with developmental milestones, like you might have friends who have a baby or something and they're worried about, is my kid walking yet? Or they come to the hospital and it's like, well, walking can happen anywhere from like eight to 16 months. That's a really normal, right? And even broader than that, potentially. And that happens all throughout childhood. There's kids who are developing socially first and physically first and all of those variables. I think we want to stop trying to be so pedantic about posture and technique and form and and exact deadlines when when a lot of these things, the, the confidence intervals are wide. Yeah. So I think just being more kind of open to the fact that there is a huge amount of individual variability. Josh, if you were boss of the world for the day, oh. what is the first thing you would change to make a difference for children and young people who are living with pain? That's a great, like that's, I, I would love that. <laughs> no, I, no, I don't know if I would. That's very overwhelming. I think I'd want to roll out a study where we provide preventative education, what we think would be preventative education, and then long-term follow-up and see if it actually can prevent pain-related disability, like chronic pain-related disability down the track. 
And so I don't know if I'd actually do anything differently like right today other than advocate for participation and get people into school and hobbies and sports and, and being physically active and not afraid to, to move. Maybe this is a really nice opportunity for me to acknowledge there are so many people I consider mentors and other amazing experts in this field of in the niche of education for chronic pain in kids, in younger kids. There are so many great teams around the world doing this stuff. So I want to give a shout out to all of them and, and thank them. I'll add my hearty thanks because for sure there are some wonderful people doing really wonderful life-changing things for children and young people and their families, all of the people around them that's that's crucial for supporting the next generation of people who are going to lead this world into the future. Now, Josh, as we finish up, I would love for you to share with the listeners your top three resources, the places that you would recommend people go to get more information about pain and children's pain in particular? The most exciting thing for me, so alongside my PhD over the last five or six years, I developed some children's books. And so you can check out Zoe and Zach's painhacks.com. There's an online portal and it's got kids resources, clinician, the evidence behind each book. And there's pages for parents and page, like lesson plans for teachers. For me, like we spent a lot of time developing that and trying to provide resources and then being able to update that. So if you check it out and you try things, give us feedback and we can keep improving and making that better. That's been a really exciting resource and I love that freely available and ready to go. The books can be bought by libraries and you can get them from your local library wherever you are now, which is exciting. I made a website during my PhD and I'm at the time I didn't really want to, but now I'm really glad I have it because it, it, it kind of has a bank of, here's all the research, here's all the links um, and you can, you can start there. So if you go to joshuawpate.com, it has all of that stuff. There. So the, yeah, the TED Ed videos and the kids books are probably most exciting things and patient facing. And then some of the papers I've talked about today, say, if you wanted to use the concept of pain questionnaire, we can, I can email it to you. So yeah, please feel free to reach out. And we'll put some links to the resources in the show notes. So if people jump into the show notes, they'll they'll find those links and, and find those resources. Josh, your enthusiasm and commitment to this field is infectious. And I'm so grateful for you coming on to JOSPT and sharing all of this information with us today. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, that's great to hear. And thank you, Claire. Yeah, really appreciate it. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.